Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. I'm Adam Elwanger, and I'm excited to talk to my guest today, who is Professor Arya Kontorovich, Professor of Computer Science at Ben Gurion University. He's won the Toronto Prize for Excellence in Research, uh, won both Amazon and Google Research Grants, served in the past as director of the Ben-Gurion University Data Science Research Center. Um, he's published dozens of peer-reviewed articles in his area of expertise. Um, his primary research interests are machine learning, probability, Markov chains, uh, engineering, data analysis, lots of diversity there. Uh, Dr. Kontorovich, welcome. Thanks, Adam, for inviting me. <laughs> Cheers. So... I ask everybody this at the beginning. Uh, how did you get interested in your areas of expertise to begin with? It seems I think you and I are about the same age. And I think that you are kind of you must have hit um, data science and machine learning at almost the perfect age to be where you are now, like really when it's coming into its full flourishing. How did you get interested in this stuff? It's a great question. It was actually, there's an interesting story behind it. So um, I wanted to be a, a doctor at a very young age. I wanted to be a surgeon. Then I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And my parents kind of talked me down from it. And they said, you know, you're too theoretical, too squeamish. You know, before they let you operate on the brain, you have to go through like guts and various other nasty stuff. So why don't you consider neuroscience instead? It's cleaner. And um, <laughs> And, and but as I was uh, sort of preparing myself for med school, which I thought I, back when I still thought I'd, I'd go to med school, I, I thought I'd study Latin to help me memorize the uh, the medical terms. And I fell in love with the language. I took four years of Latin and I guess three years of Latin in high school and some some more courses in college. One of them was amusingly called at Princeton uh, uh, slander, invective, and and profanity cursing in the ancient world. A very very um, an entertaining course. Uh, and you know, I'm a native speaker of Russian. I was born. I was born in Russia. Came to the U.S. and at age uh, almost ten. And I studied Hebrew also. So I, I, I sort of uh, the abstraction. The, the abstraction involved in um, switching between four languages uh, just gives you an appreciation of how of how data is stored in the brain. How sort of you there's this mystery where you you read a novel and you can recount it at a very high level of detail. In other words, somebody asks you, what, what's the novel about? You can tell, recall characters' names, what they did, but you don't remember the words. You don't remember word for word. In fact, you you, know, you have a really hard time, unless you're a savant, you have a, a really hard time, you know, reciting any, any passage from the novel. Uh, and yet you remember, you know, you remember the content. So what what's being stored? How are, you know, what's the format? What's the internal language? What's, you know, how's the storage... How's that big process? That was really, you know, there's it's a thing called mentalese, an internal language of the brain. It's not English. It's not Hebrew. It's not any natural language. It's some kind of a universal internal language, which, you know, it wouldn't have articles. It wouldn't have uh, and the because, they're, you know, you know what you're referring to. You don't need to have these things. It wouldn't have synonyms, for example. Right. It would be kind of everything. Every object has its own unique pointer. Right. So uh, I was fascinated by mentalese. I, I thought I'd study, you know, I thought I'd study how the brain processes language. And uh, I was, so I, I did my undergraduate at Princeton and I was fortunate because I did a, a summer internship at Bell Labs in, I believe it was 98 uh, at Bell Labs in Mary Hill, New Jersey. 
And I was very fortunate to work with two really uh, outstanding mentors, Daniel Lee, now at UPenn, and Sebastian Sung. I don't, he, he may be at MIT. Uh, uh, really outstanding neuroscientists, but, but very mathematically oriented neuroscientists. And they were in the process of inventing a new uh, uh, statistical tool that is now known as um, non-negative matrix factorization. It's a standard. It's, it's become a standard tool. It's, it's it's become something you know everybody uses. It's like it's like a, it's like regression, uh, but it was being invented sort of uh, before my eyes. I was I, I was present. I was I got to witness this process of creating a new scientific a new statistical tool for for, for analysis, and I was you know chatting with the various sort of big names in this field of this emerging field of cognitive neuroscience, learning theory, uh, AI, the, the term AI, we're talking about late 90s, the term AI was was very much passe, very much uh, not in vogue because of the AI winter that, that you might be aware of, right? The AI sort of in the 70s. So there was this, there was this uh, approach to AI involving expert systems. So the idea was we're going to interview experts. This is the old idea. We're going to interview like a doctor or a mechanic and try to get their insight into how they solve problems and code that up into a program. And then that'll be the expert system. And that was an abysmal failure that that got nowhere. So, so that overpromised, under, you know, badly overpromised, badly under delivered. And it, it was the cause of so-called AI winter. So, so the, the funding dried up, the enthusiasm dried up. Well, for a while, uh, people thought this was a problem that couldn't be solved. I guess not. It, it became clear that, it's not going to be solved by coding up, you know, all possible cases by hand. That that became pretty pretty clear. And so what what began to emerge out of its ashes, out of the ashes of of, of this sort of old old style AI expert systems, what began to emerge was this approach called statistical learning theory. Meaning we're not going to try to attempt to, you know, to write down a set of rules by which you say you recognize an image or you. Uh, drive a car, right? There's, there is no set of rules. We're going to try to just observe, exam get many, many examples from from nature, get get data, get get tons and tons of data, and use this data to induce some rules automatically, maybe implicitly, maybe you know, at the end of the day, there's not going to be a, a, a clean rule that says, okay, if you see a red light and it's not blinking, you you know, you should stop, but don't stop too quickly because you might cause that. So, so. Um, we're just going to uh, uh, get examples from uh, either unlabeled examples, which are cheap and plentiful, or maybe label, you know, maybe get an expert to label some examples for us. Instead of, in other words, don't tell me how you perform a task. Just tell me this is, you know, if you're, for example, if you're um, a radiologist, don't tell me how you diagnose tumors. Just tell me, you know, just label some, just label some tumors for me on, on some X-rays, right? Just do that and give me those examples, and I'll, I'll, I'll take it from there. And that uh, approach was far more successful than the rule-based, you know, classical AI. And I was, so we're talking about late 90s, and I was, you know, getting advice, getting inputs from various experts. You know, I said, I want to go to grad school in neuroscience or cognitive neuroscience. And they all told me you should major in something more mathematical, like computer science, because that's where, you know, all the big names actually came from physics, you know, major is something very fundamental, very mathematical, and then do and then do whatever you want. After after you get the, the mathematical foundations, you can really do. And this is, by the way, this is advice I still give to all to anybody who asks me. 
I tell them, get all the math tools, really, you know, bulk up on, on math tools, because that's the bottleneck. Once you have all the, all the mathematics, that's the real bottleneck between, you know, researchers. Once you bulk up on math, you can go out and do, it opens up all kinds of doors. And um, as I, actually, I began my PhD at Carnegie Mellon in their Language Technologies Institute, because I was still interested in language and, and applied linguistics. Uh, and uh, again, it was my luck that um, I wrote some a couple of early papers that I, I was having trouble publishing. Some of them are still unpublished and, and still being cited, but you know, never get published. And I uh, began to get my first results in theory, in actual you know proving theorems, and and um, that seemed to go well. So that's where I've been since then. So that's kind of a long circuit. You know, I don't know if it's more than you bargained for, but it's a very long circuitous path. No, so I, I, I had no idea. Nobody had, you know, not one person, not what we're talking about, you know, early aughts. Not one person said to me, oh, go into machine learning. It'll, it'll be hot in, you know, 2010. <laughs> not, I don't recall that being said, but yeah, they said, you know, you'll, you'll do okay. You'll computer science. You'll do okay. Industry. I mean, you'll, you'll be fine. But nobody ever said, yeah, this is like, this is the big buzz. This is the big, uh, you know. So yes. Just... <laughs> so it, it it more or less was a fortuitous uh, chain of events that landed you in this this spot. Um, and I think so. you have some good advice for students there. If uh, if students are are listening, uh, bulk up on the math, and you can do what you like. Um, but as you were talking about the second approach after kind of the AI winter, you know, the, the radiological example that you used, it seems to me that this is exactly, um, to my layperson's understanding, how chat GPT works, right? You just give it an immense amount of data. In this case, that data is in instances of language use. Um, and it learns essentially, well, I guess the the word learns is debatable here, but it's able to simulate um, language use, right? Um, yeah. And you've recently done some interesting, at least uh, I don't know how interesting it is from a scientific perspective. It's interesting to me uh, from a linguistic perspective, because what you've demonstrated is, is that with all of ChatGPT's sophistication in conversation, um, when you give it fairly elementary uh, logic and probability problems, particularly word problems, not just uh, math, you know, not just a mathematical equation or something like that, but a a problem that is described in terms of nouns and verbs and, and this kind of thing. Um, and I think, is it fair to say that the problems you were giving to ChatGPT that say an advanced sixth grader might be able to to answer correctly? Let me unpack because there's there's a lot of stuff from the beginning. So first of all, there's, there's a question of whether or not it learns. That was yeah. the first issue. And yes, I think it definitely there's, there's definitely learning. There's definitely you know learning as opposed to rote regurgitation. Definitely learning. It, it's definitely generalizing. It's definitely processing novel text that it probably hasn't seen before, you know, contiguously as a, as a single chunk. So there's definitely learning. There's definitely some sophisticated learning, some sophisticated generalization, for sure. There's even, I'd say there's even, there's even intelligence, because intelligence, we can measure be, behaviorally. We can observe, you know, intelligence isn't some abstract, you know, fluffy quantity. It's it's measurable. We can, it's, it's your ability to solve problems, to, to generalize, to solve novel problems. So intelligence, you can, whatever, you can give it IQ tests, I imagine. 
So it, it solves intelligent tasks. You can say, you can ask it to write me some code or to, you know, do your taxes, right? You can give it, I'm sure you, you can give it. I, I think current GPT is, is at, a, at a stage where you, you can give it the legal, the, the tax code, all, all the tax, all whatever, million pages of the tax code. It'll go through it. Then you give it your, ta- your you know, your particular tax statements and say, do, you know, based on the law, tell me what I owe. And I think it'll do that very well, honestly. Uh, and this is just rote, uh, sort of number crunching, though. It's, uh, understanding, it's understanding. It's understanding the rules. It's understanding. You know, it's 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 uh, com, you know, extract. I wouldn't say understanding. Extracting the relevant, extracting the relevant rules from this huge body of text. To figure out how they apply to this case and and uh, doing the arithmetic with the with the numbers. Uh, so you asked about the work, the particular work problems. So let me, uh, if I may, uh, offer two pointers here. Two pointers outside of this conversation. So one pointer is uh, my Twitter account where uh, I posted these things. So so people who are curious can can go look. They're they're specific, specific, you know, carefully worked out examples. If people want to follow you, what's your handle there? Yeah, um, I can spell it out uh, if you like. It's it's my first name, R-E-A, and then H-A-Z-A-N, Hazan, which is like the Hebrew for it's, it's a Hebrewization of my last name. Sorry, Hazan. Just if you uh, if you Google my full name and then Twitter, intelligence Google intelligence will guide you there. So that shouldn't be a okay. problem. There's not. I don't think I have. I don't think I have many impersonators at this at this stage. <laughs> um, so, so you posted and, this stuff to Twitter. I did, and and the other pointer and the other pointer to the really to the curious, uh, there is a. I'm just listening. I'm just in in mid in mid podcast. Razib Khan recorded a podcast, I believe, with Kevin Mackay, I believe, or uh, um, uh, his, his most recent uh, podcast is exactly about the sort of a layman's uh, uh, in- introduction and explanation behind GPT, uh, what it stands for, how, how it works. It's so far, I'm halfway through so far, it's excellent. So for those, you know, I'm not a deep learning guy. I'm not a GPT, you know, I couldn't tell you how, what all the inner workings are. But for those who are curious, that, that I think is a great place to to get sort of a more technical feel for it. So, and finally, is it at a sixth grade level? Well, at, at something, I mean, at something, it's it's way beyond a sixth grade level, right? At something, yes. I mean, you have way right, beyond, so, right? Right. It's it's hard to it's hard to pin it down at a at a certain you know. I'm saying your your particular probability problems that you gave it, a smart sixth grader could get right. Yeah, right. So I asked, you know, my question, I asked it, so um, I gave it um, the prompt, you know, uh, I have black and white socks in my drawer, and I'm trying to draw, um, I need a matching pair. I don't care what color, but I need a matching pair. And if it's dark, I, I can't see what I'm drawing. What's the smallest number of socks that I must draw to guarantee that I have a matching pair? And this is three, because if I get two, it could be one white, one black, so it's not enough, but... If it's three, then definitely there'll be two of one color. And that got correct, uh, unsurprisingly, because this problem is as old as as dust. And uh, there's plenty of worked out examples on the, it, it, it's seen it, it's seen it, right? Yes. And then I gave it a variant, you know, there's an alien with seven feet and there's seven colors, the same, same idea. And it got that badly wrong. It bungled it, you know, it, it even got the basic arithmetic wrong. And you can follow, there's a thread where it sort of, Demonstrate how it's, what I call catastrophic breakdown. Not not just you know a little a little 
inaccuracy or a little, you know, mix up, you know, fake citation on Wikipedia. Kind of like just everything goes wrong. So um, it, it would be no. as if it would, it would be it would be as if as if in the middle of our conversation, I casually remarked, "Oh, you know, by the way, the moon is made out of cheese," and we all know that. Right. Obviously, I just I just kept going, you know, as if as if nothing happened. Right? You would think I'm insane, and everything I just said is is in question all of a sudden because you know it's the same thing to say. So people, there's an interesting philosophical question of should we judge GPT by its successes or by its failures? What's what's a fair what's a fair test? And my and my uh, claim has been that its failures are its successes are very impressive, but its failures are very informative because they give us insight into its limitations and into what it can't do. So I think we shouldn't we shouldn't keep a score. Of, oh, hundred successes, one failure. That that's not that's not the right way to score it. I think I think failures are interesting and insightful. So this is my question then. So you give it an alien at seven feet. We've got seven different colors of socks. How many socks does it have to draw out of the drawer? It gets it badly, badly wrong. My question even after, is... Even after I tried to sort of to hint to it and prompt to it, and even I gave it the right answer. So like I said, <laughs> at one point I said, the, the right answer is 43. Explain why. And it, it just blew the, you know, you didn't get that... So my question then is, what does this tell us? You, you said that the failures are instructive. What does this tell us about what chat GPT is and how it works and uh, what its its legitimate applications might be? So, so um, if you take what I say, what I say with, with a grain of salt, because as I said, I'm not a, I'm not a deep learning uh, researcher. I'm not an engineer, so. So uh, I'm, you know, I think I'm more of a philosopher in this case than than um, than an engineer. Uh, and to me, you know, I've, I've been going around saying that to me, GPT has been illustrating the distinction between understanding and intelligence, because GPT is is this strange instance of intelligence without understanding. Uh, so um, okay, the, the way it's been, the way it was trained, roughly speaking, is it. It's a, a learning system that gets uh, rewarded for predicting the next token. So it's it's been trained on lots and lots, lots of text, and it has some. It looks back some window, some you know hundred words back or, or however many words back, and tries to predict the next word, the, the next token. Um, now, if you had if you had shown me the transcripts of you know GPT, so I've been having by the way I've been having fun. I've been having conversations with like Spinoza and Nietzsche. Uh, those are amazing. Those are super informative, super fun, super for me. You know, rather than re reading a book this thick, I can just just dive down to the you know the interesting points and and say you know ask I asked Nietzsche you know what's your greatest contribution and he he gave me the answer. And I said, oh, but isn't that like Machiavelli? So no, it's different. Okay, it's similar, but his distinction. <laughs> so really, really gives you like a, a full course. You know, from a Top expert, assuming assuming it's not lying, which you have to make sure. But but really, I mean, amazing tool. So um, uh, it it does all that. Uh, but then, um, so those are all the um, so things. It's obviously seen. It's obviously been trained on, on this, right? So can I ask you this? You my hang-up with the AI, as somebody who has very little scientific and mathematical training, I'm interested in consciousness. And there's so much to this that looks to me like consciousness. And you just said, assuming it's not lying. 
Now, when I think about lying, I think of an agentive cognitive process. Yeah, I didn't mean right. that. I didn't mean that. I meant just the just, just bullshit, just, just being, you know, flubbing, being, being wrong. Being wrong. Okay. So, but it so looks like lying, right? So if, if you had shown me, so what, 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 what I started saying, if you had shown me these transcripts of these conversations five years ago and asked me, what do you think about the system that's producing this exchange? I would have said, wow, it's conscious. It's it has full intelligence. You're you're speaking with a conscious, intelligent, sentient entity. And now that I've played around with it, it's clear to me that it's not it's not really understanding what's happening. So you know, I I here's a here's a simple illustration. Also uh, on my Twitter Twitter threads. So the way I I test it often is I'll translate a joke from Russian because on the assumption that it hasn't seen it, it hasn't been trained on that because all the English jokes it's seen. So here's the Russian joke. Um, there's a boat park that's, that's, that's renting boats. And, um, you've seen this, I right? <laughs> I saw this. Yes. It's, it's a good joke. Go ahead and, and tell yeah, it. But one you hadn't heard before, right? Cause it's, cause it's from Russia. That's right. right? So tell it. So the joke is it's uh, the, this place is closing down for the day and the guard sort of, uh, yells into the loudspeaker. Okay. All boats come back. Uh, numbers, boat number nine. That means you too. <laughs> and, uh, the boss calls him over and says, you know, we only have eight boats. And then he yells, okay, boat six, is there a problem? Um, and, <laughs> and you're laughing because you because in your mind, you imagine boat number six flipped over, everybody's right. drowned. Yes, there is a problem. Of course there's a problem. You know, it's, it's a hell of an understatement. They're dead. <laughs> um, but the, the um, first of all, I told I, I told her this text without telling her that it's a joke. Its reaction was very interesting. It it spun this whole tale about, oh. Some other boats from a different part came over, and you know, it, it, just, it, continued, it continued the narrative. It just took over and continued the narrative. Then they, as I said, you know, that was a joke. What was funny about it? Oh, it's a, it's funny because you confused the numbers six and nine because they're similar. And I asked, well, what mishap might have caused that confusion? And he said, oh, it's you know, on the various lighting angles, on under various positions, uh, <laughs> you know. And I tried various honestly, honest to God, I tried to nudge it into, into, well, something happened there, and you know, some physical, no, it has no understanding of boats, water, boats can flip over, you know, it's funny, tragic, whatever, dark humor, missed that entirely. So, I mean, okay, that's, I think that's clearly, you're not dealing with, you know, with a full set of Cards there, right? It's also cards. interesting that precisely what makes it a joke is the fact that it's kind of a brain teaser. There's a split second for the human that says, wait a second, what what's going on? And you go, oh, right, right. it flipped right. over, right? right? And so it, it, got, so it got the hard part. It, it got the six and nine are, are, you know, are related. Um, so that to me indicates that there's no understanding. There's no model. There's no, you don't. It's not imagining a boat. It's not imagining, you know, the motion of the water, what water can do. Uh, it's but what's amazing, what's truly amazing and uncanny is how far one can get without understanding. That is my that's something I learned. That that to me is my biggest takeaway, my my biggest paradigm shift. I, I would say it's to me personally in my personal little world, it's sensational. It's it's astounding how far it's possible to get without understanding. 
So it's kind of like, I assume you've seen the American film Rain Man with Dustin yes. Hoffman. Yes. Yes. It's kind of yes. like we have Rain Man here in GPT, who has these amazing abilities, but also this sort of fascinating obliviousness to all of the contextual elements of life. A little bit, a little bit, right, a little bit, a little bit. You know, I imagine, I think, you know, autism has... Uh, there's a specific, as far as I understand, there's a specific impairment in processing emotion and interpreting other people's emotions. I imagine if you asked Rain Man, you know, why would six and nine, you know, I, I think you might figure out that it was it fl flipped over because it's a it's a physical thing, it's a mechanical thing. I imagine even that, even that he might have, you know, his his understanding is limited, but as far as other people go, not as far as like a boat flipping over on a on the yeah. river. I, I imagine. So let me ask you this too, and I'll, I'll I'm gonna go into this question a little backwards. Oftentimes I'll ask students, you know, what did we learn in this course? Or I'll ask them a question that, um, you know, we talked about at many points during the semester. And I'll say, all right, you guys know this. We've talked about this many times. They start flipping through their notebooks. And I say, no, 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 no notebooks, right? We've been over this many times, right? What is What is the answer? And they can't answer it without the notes. And then I say to them, well, then you haven't learned it. If you still need to go back in the notes, then you haven't learned it. In other words, for me, what learning is, is an ability to carry the information forward after some duration of time. Like, in it's, other it's, words... It's connections, connections, compression, right? Is, compression. is the knowledge operative after the moment where I just gave it to you? Absolutely. And you, you've described, you, you've talked about uh, GPT, you've said that it's learning. Um, and I wonder, is it learning in that sense? Like we can instruct it in the moment where I kind of lead it, like you said, to the answer. And then it can maybe in the, the ensuing few minutes, apply that same lesson to certain other questions. But if I were to come back to it, say two days later and ask it to apply what it had learned at, from an earlier date, could it do it? And if it can't, is it really learning at all if it has to go back in the notebook? Right. So good question. So this is actually has a very simple answer. So uh, have you have you talked with GPT? Have you yeah. This? So yep. it, it it saves chats. Yes. So if you go back to the same chat two days later, it'll just pick up where it left off. It'll remember everything because it's all there because its memory is the chat. It, it just goes back, you know. That's pretty fascinating. I never thought oh, yeah. of it that way. Yeah. But... Yeah. So, so that's easy. Now between chats, it's a new you know session each time. So it's, it's so a baby every time you start. It's a baby, right? Well, it's a baby that's come with a lot of pre-installed, you know, all the knowledge of GPT. But it's a tabula rasa as far as you, as far as as far as the interaction with you. Okay. Uh, so uh, does that answer? Yeah, but I I guess my 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 if I wanted to play devil's advocate, since it's a baby every time, I would say, well, it's really not learning, right? Um, because it Only can't. Because only because not for any not for any fundamental reason only because the 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 way it's set up you know the the makers you know the the interaction the account isn't it, there's no feedback in other words it's not you know there are, it's a it's a neural net with, with like weights that are you know during what is learning in the neural net you update the weights you change the weights right yeah but so, i can access like when i come to a new conversation you know i can access the logs in that conversation and that's part right. of what learning is for me you know well, if right. it can't right. access the logs then yeah, but it, it's purely it's purely the, the limitation is not 
fundamental. It's purely just the way it's been set up, you know, as far as the account goes. In other words, in fact, even probably for your own privacy. I mean, would you want your conversations to, you know, be used by OpenAI? I mean, maybe not. Maybe there's some stuff that you don't want. But so, by the way, by the way, PSA to everybody, don't give it anything, even if it says it's not, you know, being, being sent back. Don't trust it. Don't give it any sensitive information. Really, I, I, you know, anything anything you say will be used against you in the court of law, possibly literally. Okay, good advice. <laughs> so, so you're saying that it's just the way it's set up. So let me ask you this. Could they revise sort of the setup to where it can access all of those prior conversations? Easily. Easily. Okay, that's actually easily. kind of dark because then we do have something that can infinitely build on... on I tweeted about that. I had a tweet about that. You know, how much I said, I said, imagine if GPT had been continuously learning from, from all its interactions with us all this time. And then I said, you know, who, said, who says it isn't? Yeah. We don't know. We don't know if it's not. I mean, they, they don't, you know, they haven't announced it, but you're on, you're exchanging information over the internet. It's going somewhere. And so this is, I mean, this is kind of beyond the scope of, of the rote kind of intellectual concerns here, but there's the geopolitical concerns of what a very strong AI could do. And in the United States anyways, and in some of the, the Western countries of the world, we've had some top figures sort of acknowledge, maybe we should just slow down with this just a little bit before we understand this. My question, I guess, is can we count on state actors like China um, or other, um, uh, I guess, loosely anti-Western regimes um, to be as cautious with these tools as we are being, or will the allure of the power that a strong AI would give be too much for them to to forego? Let me respond with a terrific question. Can count on China not to engage in bioweapons research? Can count on China not to engage in industrial espionage. Uh, so, and that, and, and there is, and there is your answer as far as I'm concerned. Well, now, the, know, if that's the case, if if we can't count on them, and I agree, then isn't there some argument that we have an obligation to continue with yes, the research? Yes. Like, yes. So the 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 retort. I've obviously, I've, you know, I've engaged in this a lot over the past few weeks. The retort. Is that um, China currently lags lags behind? And so there's a very specific kind of processor that that uh, is I, I, you know, it's not required, but it, it there's you have to understand there are enormous enormous um, challenges as far as processing these huge vast uh, um, masses massives of, of data. So so you need just the the sheer think of it as like as like building a um, I don't know, not nuclear weapon, but building a new chip factory, like a, a new factory for, you know, for state-of-the-art chips, right? China doesn't have that. That's in Taiwan, right? So technologically, getting this thing to run, to work, you need billions of dollars, which China has. We also need technology that, that it might not necessarily have. Um, in part because there are these these um, GPUs, graphics processing units, that I think I'm not I'm, I'm fuzzy on this, so don't you know take it with a grain of salt. I believe 
the U.S. stopped exporting those to China because they're strategic, you know, just the, the processing power. This is just, just chips, computer chips, not, you know, um, but just because <clears throat> I guess we, we reasoned that, hey, they can't manufacture them on their own. They don't have the technology. And this stuff is very powerful. This stuff can be used for military and uh, um, various applications. And let's let's stop selling it to them. And so, and so there's an argument, which again, I don't, I have no idea how solid this is, but there's an argument being made by people who, presumably no better than, than me, that it wouldn't be so easy for China to, to catch up on its own, this kind of thing. And so if we, if just we unilaterally decide to put to pause this, who's we, I guess, the US, Google, OpenAI, then maybe it'll actually, um, you know, genuinely be paused for a while. I mean, eventually China will catch up. Eventually they'll all catch up. It's a question of, you know, question of time. Well, that's comforting. That's one of the more comforting uh, uh, assessments I've but I've heard. I don't of know this. how, but I don't know how accurate that is. I, you okay. know, I'm going I'm going based on what. Uh... So you have said um, in an earlier conversation of ours that you think that a a that GPT could pass a Turing test. Um, it seems that there's been some debate over this. For listeners, if you don't know what a Turing test is, basically it's a question of. If we allowed you to have a chat with um, some entity online, could you tell whether or not you're talking to a computer, right? For a long time, this has been a measure of, of have we constructed artificial intelligence? Well, when you can't tell if you're talking to a computer, then that passes the Turing test, um, Alan Turing's uh, test that he devised. And then we have something that we could loosely call artificial intelligence, Arie, how, why do you say it's it's passed a Turing test? Do you think it's that strong that we can't that like generally it's indistinguishable? So to steal to steal a line from this podcast of Razib Khan uh, that I just heard like an hour ago, um, in some sense it fails the Turing test because it it knows too much. You, you, you know, no single no single human could possibly you know give you discourses on 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 Nietzsche and Chinese poetry, medieval poetry, and and uh, you know. Various plastic kinds, you know, just, just, um, there's too so much knowledge. It, too, too much knowledge, yeah. But <clears throat> I mean, I think the Turing test, uh, might be inherently flawed as a measure of intelligence because you always assume you come to a conversation from an assumption of good faith, right? When I'm talking to you, I expect that just like me, that you're being, that you're acting, that you're acting in good faith, you're not deceiving, you're, you're not trying to catch me, you know, you're not trying to entrap me in the gotcha. You're not trying to get me to, you know, to slip up. Uh, you're not testing me. You're not like, you're not doing this to test if I'm a machine or not. You're just having, you know, we're, we're two guys having a conversation. And uh, as soon as a conversation becomes adversarial in the sense that, you know, I'm trying to figure out is this a machine or not. Well, try to carry it out with a, Try carrying that on with the human, see how he reacts. Just, just try it. It's, it's. I'll bet you it'll turn. I'll bet you it'll, it'll turn weird. I'll bet you it'll turn. <laughs> it'll turn weird or nasty real fast. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. So, so clearly, I've caught GPT. You can you can easily catch a GPT in slip ups. That's that that'll make anybody realize uh, it's, it's not human. You have to know where to look. It, it's not going to be you know if if if, if, if you're un- if you're inexperienced if you don't know what you're looking. In other words. If you're if you're unsuspecting, you could be fooled. 
if you know where to look, you'll you'll find easily and in, in many many such such instances. So does that kind of? Yeah, it does. Uh, one of the things that you know, I I'm working in an English department, and people are very concerned about GPT writing papers, and it's exactly what you just said. I, I'm not that concerned because. The way that I feel about it is I can recognize it in a second because it the, the writing is too clean, right? There's not enough errors. <laughs> um, and that's how I know that it wasn't written. Now, that said, I shouldn't say what I'm about to say, right? Um, they're going to start putting in errors on purpose, right? That's, start, that, yeah. that's it. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, the, the question is whether or not students are sophisticated enough to take the extra steps that would be necessary to... Even if they are, there's going to be a website that does it for them. <laughs> That's true. Do they... I mean, it, we keep leveling down the effort. Do they have enough effort to go to the website to have it done for them? Right? Uh, so the, the Chinese room, um, this is another sort of classic uh, a test of artificial intelligence, at least sort of in the thought experiment world. And... Um, I guess I'll, I'll try to explain to viewers that you don't know what the Chinese room is. Is basically it's just, um, boy, it's such a long explanation. You could probably explain it better than okay, I could yeah. quickly. So, so there's a philosopher named, I guess, John Searle. I think it's yes. name is John Searle, and he he was arguing. I think he constructed this this um, thought experiment to argue that I guess that. Um, Maybe to argue my point, actually, that it's possible to have, you know, intelligent behavior without understanding, without consciousness. Uh, you know, it's a little bit, you know, it's funny because I'm about to demolish his, his, uh, I'm about to, I'll, I'll, I'll give the, the thought experiment, I'll demolish it, but it's kind of making my point. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So, so here's the thought experiment. You are sitting in a room and you have, and you, and you receive slips of paper through a window, and you have a huge rule book. You have a huge, enormous book that tells you what to do with each slip, with each slip of paper, and you follow the rules. If you know you change, it's you're doing pure symbolic manipulation. That's to you is meaningless. You get, you, you know, you're you translating messages, say, from Chinese into English. You don't even know that. You're not aware of that. You're, you're, you, as far as you're concerned, you're carrying out mechanical, meaningless mechanical tasks. Now, what it turns out is that you're actually carrying, carrying conversation in Chinese. What, what it turns out is that the messages you receive are in Chinese and your output is in Chinese and you're carrying on some intelligent conversation in Chinese, which you have no idea about. You're, you don't know Chinese. You don't understand the messages, right? You're, you're just doing, you're just following a complicated set of rules. Yes. And and Searle and sort of Searle's, you know, gotcha, Searle's sort of, uh, you know, conclusion is that, oh, you know, where is the intelligence? Where is the understanding? It's 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 a... Uh, you, you know, you're apparently, you know, the person conversing with the room thinks that it's intelligent, but really there's no, nobody speaks Chinese in, the, in that, in that whole conglomerate, in that whole, who's, who speaks Chinese? Where's the understanding, right? So, I mean, and I, I mean, I mean, it, it, it really, it's, it's, I think it's a very weak analogy for a number of reasons. First of all, there's the time scale, right? To implement this, you know, to, you know, time scales matter, right? If, if we're, if if you and I are carrying a conversation and you know you're running at your time scale and I'm running you know I reply to you once in a century right that's <laughs> not you know time scales you know I'm a computer science we do computation we do algorithms runtime is matter time scales matter to actually you know quality becomes quantity becomes quality all of its own 
So there's, there's an that. imminence, imminence there's to the communication. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's also there's a more fundamental there's a more fundamental sort of first principles objection, which is well, you know, you understand English, right? You process English. Uh, well, it's not really you; it's your brain, and it's not really your brain; it's your neurons. But no single neuron. Not one of your, you can't point to me to a neuron that speaks English, right? The neurons don't speak English. They perform these very simple tasks. So where is the English being understood? It's not, you know, it's, it's this whole system. So the response is the system understands English, not any particular, not any part of it, but the system does it. And in, in, in the same sense, the room as a system understands Chinese, you know, speaks Chinese. So uh, I think, yeah, I think Searle, I think um, this example of, you know, neurons performing dumb tasks to create yeah. emergent intelligent behavior I, I think that kind of shows that that Searle's uh uh kind of it's it's, it's not the right as in the words of daniel dennett the philosopher of uh -huh. mind it's 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 not the right intuition pump it doesn't it doesn't in other words a, a good analogy is, is supposed to is supposed to strengthen the intuition or isolate some isolate some some key Components and clean, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't do that. It kind of muddles. It muddles the water rather than clarifying things. Well, isn't but, this part of Searle's insight? Is that like if a computer works that way, it just applies the rules and is able to spit out this message? That ultimately, even if we look down on that as kind of a rudimentary way of doing it, it's almost exactly what the brain does, right? So the, ultimately, it's the, the computer isn't doing anything that's that much different than what the brain does. Is that what he was saying? So was arguing against consciousness? Is he saying consciousness is not real? It's an illusion? It's, I think, I don't think that that's, I don't think he goes that far. But I, I do think that he sort of draws the conclusion that ultimately, you know, we can't, identify the computer thing because the 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 biological intelligence works roughly the same way i would i would agree with that um i don't think we need to go to the chinese room for you know it's i think there's a much simpler i think there's a much simpler argument and it goes like this i don't even i don't even know i don't even know whose argument it is because it's, it's probably as old as uh, as the greeks as the ancient greeks so the argument is as follows take a human and replaces neurons. Imagine that it's possible to replace a neuron by, you know, to simulate a neuron with a with a uh, mechanical or a silicon or some non-biological device that that exactly replicates the input-output behavior of a neuron. It's not that far-fetched. I mean, there's some assumptions there, but it's not terribly far-fetched, right? Uh -huh. And then you replace you you take this person and you're you're conversing with him and you replace his neurons one at a time with their you know non-biological simulations. Right, so at which point does it stop being human? At which point does it stop being conscious or intelligent or whatever? It's silly. So I think once you sort of, so to me, it's pretty clear that there's no fundamental, there's no principled way to distinguish between inherent the human intelligence versus, you know, some simulation. All right, I got to pull this back onto my disciplinary uh, uh, sure ground here. This is a nasty question to ask after that. Do you believe well, in the, in the soul? Well, okay. You have to keep in mind that I I'm, I'm wearing a a, a, a kippa, a yarmulke. So so I'm an I'm an Orthodox Jew. I'm an observant Jew. Now, a very interesting thing about Orthodox Jews, you know, Judaism is very much about action. So um, a lot you know, there's a thing called halacha, which is you know how you act. You know, we have very very strict dietary laws and 
And you know, like I'm, I'm wearing a white shirt because the Sabbath is about to start in in a few in a few hours. When Sabbath starts, I won't be using a computer. I won't be writing. I won't be making, you know, lighting a fire. Um, and there are various, you know, really, really tiny minutiae that you have to study very carefully. Uh, you know, belief. We almost never talk about it. belief. Is, is almost, you know, in fact, in fact, I think I've gotten the I've gotten the sense that among Observant Jews among Orthodox Jews talk about belief. You know, asking asking another Jew all the time, do you really believe in God? That's almost indecent because it's private. Right. You know, I'll ask a fellow Jew. I'll ask a fellow Jew what level of kashur do you keep because it's important. Because you know, if I if I want to go out to a restaurant, I want to know if we have the same level of you know, can we both eat there? Right. That's important. But do you actually believe in the soul? That's a little bit. It's almost a little bit indecent because. It's between him and God, you know. That's 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 too that's too private to even go there. So, I will I will respond that you know my uh, identity, my religion. So first of all, I wear two hats. I'm a scientist. I'm a philosopher. When I do science, I just do science. I, you know, how do I engage with science? Science is a game like chess. It has it has rules. So it, it's not about truth. It's not about you know. Uh, is, is there God? Is there not? You know, it could be that that God is real, but it's not a scientific theory. So as far as science, so science has nothing to say about that. So when we do science, we just we play by the rules. We play by the rules of science. That's it. Uh, now, when I play by the rules of Judaism or humanity, or you know, or or uh, I'm I'm in, I'm an Israeli. I'm a Zionist. So I you know I I identify with my people. I identify with my country. So uh, obviously, I will. Uh, Identify with you know to me it's a package to me Judaism is a is a Judaism Zionism it's all it's one package there's the land there's the religion there's the people there's the language there's it's all one package that, that's that's how I see it so um, uh, publicly um, I I can give you no other answer I I can give no other answer than yes I believe you know that that, that the Torah is God's literal truth and and uh, there's a soul and by the way Judaism is, is also very vague on what happens after you die? It's very, very vague. We don't talk about it. We don't really. I mean, you know why I die? You know why I live because you have a lot of things to accomplish in, in, in this world. And it's actually very, very like. And there's this notion that yeah, if, if you've been good, you'll be rewarded in, in some vague sense. If you've been bad, you'll be punished in some, in some vague sense. But that's not what this is all about. This is about here and now. The reason I ask is not to to do gotcha. It's because whenever I whenever I listen to um, computer scientists in particular speak. And I hear them say things like what you said, where could we replace a neuron with a chip? Um, it seems to me, um, I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan, but I was a big fan when I was a child. The original Star Wars is, and, and Yoda pinches Luke on the arm and says, luminous beings are we, not this crude matter. Um, and it seems to me that whenever we talk about building consciousness, whatever that luminous part of us, which to me seems to be the thing that really makes us humans, that seems to be the element that's always left out of this equation. And that's because we have no idea. We have no idea how to talk about it. We have no idea how to formalize it. So, do you know Eric Coel? No, I don't think so. He's a uh, he's a very interesting. Um, uh, uh, I guess he was a, he was a neuroscientist. He was an academic neuroscientist who left the academia to write fiction about neuroscience. Ah. And 
and he he has the, he has at least two books out. One one of them I'm, I'm in the middle of right now. It's called the I guess the Revelations. So here's a plug for Eric Cole. And you, you can look him up. He's on Twitter. He um he's on Substack. So he his his whole DHD research was about consciousness and you know the the neuro the neuro not the philosophy. I mean he's a philosopher too, but but mainly the the neural correlates of consciousness. Uh, and I've been trying to. You know, I, I thought about consciousness a lot. I've, I've read all the books by Dennett and Hofstadter and sort of I've, my teen, my late teens were spent a lot obsessing with consciousness and philosophy of mind. And lately I've kind of been trying to grab any, any philosopher that I can, that I can get my hands on asking, you know, has there been any novel insight about consciousness like since the Greeks? And the answer is usually no, we're still, we're, we're stuck pretty much exactly where, where we've been 2000, you know, Plato identified the mind body problem. It's a problem. It's still a problem. We're still, we're still, uh, you know, the soul thing, right? It's the mind. It's the mind body problem, right? That, that, that's that's what it is. It's a, it's a paradox of human of the human condition that we are these. On the one hand, we're these noble, these noble creatures with, you know, that can access higher math and, and poetry and philosophy, and we. And on the other hand, we're, we're hunks of matter. And and how do you reconcile that? Uh, we're still, as far as I can tell, we're not any further than, than two thousand years ago. Good. I don't want us to get any further. This is what worries me is that you guys are a little too hot on the trail here to, to get us further. Um, I want to stay where we are. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, you know, uh, I think that uh, at some point we will get behavior in the machine in silicon behavior that is truly, you know, you can chat with it and you won't be able to poke any holes. It'll, it'll behave you know, as, as human as any other human you chat with by a keyboard. Right. And okay, and you have full access to all of its to all of its uh, weights, to all of its algorithms, to all of its workings, and you still won't know what consciousness is. In other words, it'll you'll think it's conscious, and you you'll be able to to read just like you know when we read you know we can access we can do MRI, fMRI, we can PET scans, we can look at people's brains, and we still don't know it's it's there somewhere, but we still don't know where it is, right? So it's there's something fundamentally mysterious about consciousness to where just look at just. Zooming in on the microscope doesn't really seem to give it to you. So this wouldn't be an episode of the Wither the Luniversity podcast um, if we didn't talk about this topic. So speaking of soullessness, I want to talk a little bit about wokeism um, in Israeli or in Israeli uh, academia and culture and also in the math and sciences. Um, uh, you uh, live in Israel do you guys have the same problems that we have institutionally there or um, is that still kind of a relative safe space from the, uh, I guess, uh, cultural Maoism that it reigns in the university in America? We are eagerly importing all the hip and cool trends from the U.S. Uh, our university has just, I think, in the past year, uh Opened an office of diversity and inclusion at Ben Gurion in, in, in Israel, uh, which I was very, very much opposed to. But see, but the, the thing is, here's here's the tragedy. I feel like Cassandra. I feel like I feel like I'm I'm this lone prophet of doom because I tell my Israeli colleagues, I tell them, I tell them, this is what this is where it's headed. This is what it is, and they think I am exaggerating. Not not you know, not outright lying, but they think I'm paranoid. It'll never happen here. You know, that's America. That, that's them. That's not us. That's what you know. That they're crazy, we're not. Um, and 
you know, diversity and inclusion. And they, they tell me, what, you know, what could you possibly, what could possibly be wrong? What kind of an ogre, what kind of an ogre would you have to be to oppose such nice things as diversity and inclusion? And I tell them, look, we all, already our, our university has a committee for investigating racist incidents. So already, you know, anybody, in particular a disgruntled student, can anonymously um, tip off this committee, anonymously complain about a faculty member, and the faculty member will be put through hell for two years, will be investigated, will be, their life will be disrupted, they'll be, you know, dragged through. And eventually, you're found innocent. Eventually, the process works. You're innocent. You're free to go, right? After you've after you have an ulcer and a couple of heart attacks and, uh, you know, your researchers <laughs> has stalled for two years. No, no, you're fine. You're free to go. So the, <laughs> the process is the punishment, right? And there's no accountability. There's no, there's no, you don't get a lawyer. You don't get a, to face your accuser. It's, it's anonymous. It's Orwellian. It's frightening. And, but, you know, but racism is a bad thing. So, so obviously, you know, we need some time. So anyway, um, I, I, I really wish Israelis uh, followed American news more closely and they don't. So why is it that they would import these things then? I understand how they might be in the position still where they say, ah, what's wrong with it? But like, why would they actively emulate these American processes? Israeli academics uh, almost by default are U.S. educated, either PhD or Mm. both. It's almost a requirement. So in Israeli academia, there's an expectation that you did your, one of your, either a PhD or postdoc abroad. And abroad, abroad typically means the U.S. So the Israeli academics are very, very much plugged into that, into the U.S. culture of, of the academia with, you know, with all of its, all of its uh, ideologies and, uh, and shibboleths. Our president is, is an American expat of the university, our university president. Our, our rector is a U.S. expat. So, so uh, essentially they, what you're saying they, is, is that American universities are exporting wokeism more or less, globally. I mean... Kind of, yeah. I mean, it seems that, you know, they're encouraging science from France. I, I, th- I think the French intellectuals, French, le- you know, academics, and, and even left-wing are kind of rebelling against it, which is a surprising and encouraging uh, sign. Wait, right, the, all... the, the French are rebelling against something? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's not, not, the, not the headline you'd expect to, yeah, but apparently even the French have had enough uh, of this. <laughs> it's funny because... It's funny because a lot of this Pomo stuff, you know, came from France, right? So, right. very down, of course. So, yes. So, um, um, except, you know, America's made it industrial strength, right? The, so, the, um, and also, uh, yeah, so it's, 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 uh, even academics, even Israeli academics that are, you know, I'm right wing, by the way, spoiler, I'm actually right. I'm, I'm a conservative, I'm, I'm right wing. This is like, this is like, I mean, it's it's who I am. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of it. Say, don't let any leftists come on the podcast, so right, everybody right. knows. No, I'm just like in case anybody didn't know. In case anybody had questions, I happen to be right wing. It's okay. It's legitimate. I'm not ashamed of it. You know, uh, I don't bite. Um, <laughs> and even people, even like-minded people in Israel that I speak to, and I tell them, look, this is you know, we should be very, we should be vigilant. We should be, we should be resisting. I say, oh, it's not going to happen here. We have bigger problems. We, we do have, you know, we have Iran. We have, uh, by the way, you, you asked early on why um, are Russian Jews particularly particularly sensitive to? to yes, yeah, so this is this. Will, let me set up the question because that was before we began recording. 
Um, you know, a few years back, I wrote an open letter that many academics signed. And as I looked at the list of academics on this, these signatories, one thing that jumped right off the page to me was how many Russian last names were on this letter that expressed concern about the state of the culture on campus. And I wonder why, why so many Russians, uh, you know, everything. Let me do a very Jewish thing to you and uh, and ask you, why do you think that is? I suspect that it's because many of them, and this is uh, uh, a suspicion because I don't know their ages, but I suspect that many of them are the children of people who lived through Soviet communism yeah. and have heard from their parents uh, about what life was like and that they are uniquely attuned in kind of a seismographic way to these changes at the level of culture that could lead to a very dark place. And I guess You're what I'm exactly, asking is, is that exactly right? right? You're exactly right. I couldn't say it better myself. The telltale signs are, it's, it's all there. It's, you know, almost word for word. Um, there are these, these rules that are A, unspoken, un unwritten. In other words, what is, you know, they keep changing. They keep, you know, you have to be attuned to the, to the culture. In, in other words, in other words, who says that you can't say homeless, but you must say unhoused, right? Who, is that a rule somewhere? No, you just have to, you have to pick it up. You have to pick up, you know, when did, when did transsexual become transgender, right? There's no, there's no directive that says you have to stop saying X and start saying Y. You just have to be. It's a sick signal that, that you're attuned. You you picked up on this new jargon. This, when, every, when did we when did we stop worker. saying prostitute and start we saying say, sex, sex workers? Work, sex worker, right, right. Well, we used to say whore, that, right? Then we stopped saying. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, so uh, so it's it's signaling. It's all it's it's game theory. It's basically game theory. It's signaling. It's and and, uh, and there's no site more entertaining. Than watching, you know, leftist autophagy, you know, watching them eat each other. It's, it's great because we see, see, right wingers. We don't, we're not, we're not appetizing. We're not. They're not trying to eat us, right? They, they eat each other, and it's, it's just get, get the popcorn and watch because it's, you know, trying to watching people trying to, and they have to because they're fighting for a limited, limited number of positions. So the way they get ahead is by, is by stepping on each other. It's, I mean. They they're destroying civilization in the process, so it's not you know it's uh, it's 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 not a very happy spectacle, but it's entertaining. It's a purity contest. It's a it's an authenticity battle to see who could be most most purely truly victimized and righteous. And and uh. honestly, I wonder how much of this is sincere belief and how much of this is cynical, cynical you know uh, just getting ahead and and and. Uh, Virtual signaling and uh, just you know power, power gains, power grabs, power struggles. I think it differs from discipline to discipline. I think in the humanities there are many true believers, um, but I wonder, and and maybe this is a good question to end with, is it, how about the the sciences, engineering, mathematics? Are in yeah, those yeah. fields, do you see it slipping away also? And if yeah. so, are those people true believers or are they good, so good. social climbers? Good, 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 good question. Good. So, so for a long time, math, you know, math and engineering, math, science, physics, computer science, really, I mean, you have to, for years, I thought it was safe because I mean, what can you, you know, I, I have the immense privilege and I still do of 
be able to get up in front of a class and just tell them everything I believe in without any reservations because it's all, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's the same stuff that's been teaching, you know, since the 60s, since the 40s. Uh, okay, so lately, so first of all, you have to distinguish, I think a lot of people don't make the distinction between there's math education, which belongs to ed schools. It's not, they're not mathematicians, they're math ed people. Ed right. schools, ed schools are evil. They must be closed <laughs> down, destroyed. The salt should be, the earth should be salted. Ed schools are the source of all evil. They're worse than gender. Ed schools are just the worst. <laughs> Agreed. That's the, the departments of education and universities are really? the fount of much evil. Really? So, so, uh, and uh, that's where you get this, you know, math is racist or I'm sorry, math is rooted in racism. Yes, right. right. There's a big That's difference. Different. There's a big difference. Yes, yes. It's rooted in racism. Uh, and so what you get is this this Mott and Bailey kind of back and forth. So you'll have some really out there, really crazy, like, marginal figures throwing some, you know, having some workshop at some math conference that says, you know, that whatever some title I can't even pronounce, white, hetero, cis, heteronormal patriarchy, and, you know, and, and it's just, it's so insane that they'll say, they'll say, oh, it's just one guy, or oh, it's a big conference. It's, it's just this one. In other words, they won't, they won't condemn it. They'll just, they'll condemn me for noticing, for for, for not picking, right, right. So I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm the bad guy for, for noticing that. Now, why are you I, so intolerant? Right now, if I held a conference where you know everybody held, everybody, if I held a computer science conference where every speaker gave a normal talk. Except one who mentioned casually that, you know, by the way, of course, the point of computer science is to build a eugenic society. Of course, the point of computer science is for the eugenics, right? Obviously. And that was all he said. That would kill my whole, con- that would kill me, my conference, my career, everything. Because, right. because, because uh, I'm not allowed to have one, you know, crazy guy. Crazy, right. crazy thing. It's, it's, um, when when the, the left's crazies must be tolerated in the name of diversity and free expression, the right's crazies must be shut down because they are a threat to civil society. Right. Now, the, they've been doing some real damage, by the way, in mostly in, in elementary education and mostly by doing away with like algebra and calculus because of various concerns about disparate right. impact. And that's, causing real, that's causing real damage. Uh, real damage to society, real damage to to the kids who can't afford private tutors because you know the the wealthier families will they will get their kids algebra and calculus right so it's so hypocritical and it's so just cruel and callous and it's hurting precisely the kids who need it most. I have no words you know no words of condemnation strong enough for the evil people who are furthering this for their own you know gain for their own financial gain and 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 and, and otherwise. Just despicable, despicable, hateful individuals who are causing real harm. You know, the, the left loves to talk about harms, right? So they're causing real, lasting harm to poor kids who can't afford, you know, math tutors. Really, right. really, uh, just beyond words. Margaret Thatcher was was really famous, you know, in in one of her excellent rants before Parliament, where she was condemning the British Marxists, and she said. They would rather that the poor be poorer than have the the rich be richer, right? And this is this is where they are the leftists with this stuff now is they would rather everybody be less educated overall, right? 
than have some people excel and everybody have a little bit higher level of education. They'd rather Absolutely. it be more miserable. Absolutely. And, and, and just to just to add one more level of cynicism to all of this, I, I, I believe the Marxists in Thatcher's day weren't out to make a buck out of off, off of all of this. Weren't right. out to grift. And and these guys, on top of on top of everything which we just said, they're also doing it to they're also you know doing it to to, to secure some position as a vice dean of something or whatever or yeah. So well, just, the, the grift is king. The grift has got to be in there somewhere, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is not a a optimistic note to end on, but the, perhaps the 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 positive note is the autophagia uh, that you talked about, right? Um, at some point, all of them will consume one another, and then you and I will uh, sort through the wreckage and pick up the gems. Let's hope um, we don't get consumed in the process. Yeah, that's that's the, that's the tricky part. It's not you know not being killed in the process of of this civilization collapse. Well, best of luck to you in evading the uh, the appetites of the uh, Israeli woke, Doctor Arya Kotorovich. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Thanks, man. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Bye.